0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa Podcast, with me your host, Des Latham. This is episode seventy-four. It's the second decade of the nineteenth century. The Trek Boers, as you heard last episode, were alarmed by the British decision to drop loan farms and start using the quit rent system to reinforce land ownership. Governor Somerset had arrived to take over the management of this new system, and to oversee the new circuit court process where justice was supposed to be provided to the long suffering Khois servants and slaves. Of the farmers. It was that double change that drove some trek boers on the frontier to rebellion and forms the core of the Afrikaner nationalist tradition and narrative to this day. The interference of the English, the escalation of human rights to include blacks, and the influence of religion in this saga can't be underestimated. A handful of rebellious Trekboers had approached the Amakosa in 1814, then again in 1815 to join them in a plan to overthrow British rule on the frontier. It was, by all accounts, a ramshackle jumble of emotions rolled into a dilapidated strategy undermined by a confused motivation. As Johannes Poseidonet, Hendrik Prinsloo, and others fomented the spirit of rebellion, authorities in the Cape were soon briefed about what was going on. It was impossible for this business to be kept secret. The trekboers were prone to panic, rumour and gossip, and perhaps all three emotions were part of the babbling that reached the authorities. The young Andries Stockenström, Graf Reynet Landrost, heard reports that the Cosa were about to descend on his town in cahoots with rebellious trekboers, and Jacob Kyler, the Utenhag Landrost, had picked up the same story. They were told that the frontier Boers and some disaffected causa, mainly Nika, had merged forces and were going to kill the British and anyone else of authority. Naturally, ringleader Hendrik Prinzler was arrested. His sidekick, Johannes Besaitnout, was on the lam, still trying to motivate Cosa leader Nika to join his rebellion and had sent another delegation to his great place, pleading for support and inviting the Korsa to re-enter the Zurfeld, the Albany region. Enrique had not been idle after the first visit from the Boers a month before. He had sent messengers and was better informed about the hopelessness of the so-called rebellion. He told Besaidna that he had received no instruction from what he called his ally, King George Third, and until receiving instructions would do nothing. Short answer, no. Kyla marched out of Utenag with his colonial soldiers, numbering 130, eventually cornering the Trekpur rebels near Graf and 60 of them surrendered immediately, but not the fearsome Johannes Poseidonot, who tried to escape into Tqoza country with his family and three other ringleaders, but they were pursued and surrounded. The rebels and their families formed a lager with their wagons and fought off the British and Cape Regiment soldiers in something that resembled an American frontier shootout. Poseidonot's coy wife loaded his guns, and was apparently shouting at the Boer men not to surrender. Eventually, Besaidnert was shot dead, and his wife and Koi Boer's son were both wounded. The British, finally, were going to make an example of the frontier Trek Boers, something that had not been done for over 150 years. They arrested five of the main ringleaders, including Hendrik Prinzler, who were all sentenced to death by hanging. What was to follow was a dreadful scene that drives emotions to the present. The setting was a ridge known as Slachter's Neck, Butcher's Neck, and it was going to live up to its name. The date, 9th of March, 1816. Ironically, this hanging was taking place as Shaka began to consolidate his empire in Zululand. So we have these moments in time completely unlinked at first glance, where Zulu nationalism began and Afrikaner nationalism began pretty much at the same time, perhaps not the same year, but close enough and in both cases, the British response to these people would be crucial in the development of Zulu and Boer nationalism. The judges ruled that the leaders of the rebellion should be executed, and Kyla and Stockenström presided over the hanging in what was called awful solemnity, where retributive justice was meted out. The two sat on their horses as 300 soldiers surrounded the gallows, adding a flavour of oppression. The gallows were wide, allowing all five condemned men to be strung up simultaneously. Beneath the gallows, the graves of the men had already been dug. Also watching, all other conspirators and officials from various districts, and all the inhabitants, the Trekpurs and many of their servants. There were even Amatosa watching, taking note of how the English were serious about this law and order business. Poseidon's coy wife, who was recovering from her wounds, was forced to watch as well. A sixth man who'd plotted with his colleagues, who was not sentenced to death, was, however, sentenced to have a rope bound around his neck and then tied to the gallows post. This was a form of mental torture, a reminder that was how close he'd come to a full hanging. And he was to have a ringside seat for the disaster that followed. And because this is South African history... The moment cannot be described without another ironic fact. The carpenters who'd constructed the gallows were mixed-race koi men who'd been receiving their artisanal skills from the missionaries at Bethelstorp. Something symbolic about that too, perhaps. After a short prayer, the condemned asked to be allowed to sing a hymn with their relatives and neighbours, and this was done in what one observer called a most clear voice and extremely impressive. One of the condemned men then shouted out that the assembled masses watching should take heed of their example. And now they're hanging. The frontier boers were large, heavy men. They were powerful, strongly built. Because of this, Kyler had taken the precaution of ordering that the ropes be doubled. But as the platform dropped beneath their feet, the ropes, suspending four of the five men, snapped. As their lone rebel colleague dangled above, Twitching in his death throes, the other four got to their feet, dazed, and ran towards Stockenström, begging for their lives. They saw the snapping of the ropes as a sign from God, and so it must be said, did most of the people watching. Chaos broke out. Relatives of the condemned men rushed towards Stockenström as well, also begging for mercy. What these people didn't know was that Kyla did not have the authority to commute the sentences. Those were passed at governor level. As someone who lost his heritage at the hands of an earlier set of imperial rebels, he was not exactly amenable to these appeals as well. However, this was a scene of horror, and later he wrote, I cannot describe the distressed countenances of the inhabitants at the moment who were sentenced to witness the execution. The ropes had snapped, and in those days, ropes were hard to come by. It took Several hours to find more rope. Imagine the condemned men waiting at the foot of the gallows. Their families wailing and the scene of madness. The dead boor dangling above them. It must have been excruciating. Eventually, more rope was found. The four men stood once again on the platform. Their relatives wailing non-stop. The platform was dropped. And the four men joined their comrade in the halls of Africana nationalism as martyrs. Anyone listening to this must surely understand how the story has resonated through the centuries. Slachter's neck was a violent shock to frontier Boers. For the first time, the authorities had actually carried out their threats against rebellious Trek Boers. Up to now, they had mostly managed to escape execution, but the British were not the Dutch. While the frontier Boers were up in arms, the stories of this day circulated and their rage was profound. Back in the Cape Colony, however, most of the Dutch speakers were unaffected by these tales of woe. The frontiers' men and women were filled with permanent festering hatred of the English. Back in Stellenbosch and Cape Town, the more urbane, metropolitan Dutch were far less emotionally involved. This would also lead to a major split in Africana politics over the next 150 years, as we are going to hear. Furthermore, the judges who condemned the rebels to death were all Dutch, and they represented entrenched interests. The judges remarked that, The persons implicated in this rebellion were no owners of land, but either resided with others, or without fixed residence, wandered about with their cattle. Vagabonds, they suggested. The landed gentry, the rich Dutch, did not regard these frontier boers as equals. They were migrants, like the Koi or the Amatosa, They thought of the Tregboers as men and women who had no concept of the value of land, but were eternally motivated by freedom from the demands of an organized civilization. At least, that was the elite view from Stellenbosch. The better-off landed farmers were actually animated with good spirit after the hangings, and had been confident that their real interests were objects of care with the government, wrote the English officials. Slachters Neck registered a new class of Dutch and then emergent Afrikaans speaker in South Africa. These rebels were mostly poor and landless, with only around 10 of the 60 rebels actually owning farms. They were what later became known as poor whites and would become a decisive political force in the social landscape of South Africa. The Poseidoners of 1816 also had the closest and most intimate relationships with black and mixed-race South Africans, yet they were the most fearful of the Koi and the Amatozo. That is the reality of the fear of submergence, and in a bizarre twist in modern times, these days the race paranoia is called replacement theory by intellectually challenged Americans making love to the AR-15s while they brandish their abridged version of the New Testament. The people on the lowest rungs of social class are often the people who are most aggressively pursuing what they presume is their own cultural identity as separate from others of different cultural identities who languish alongside them. It's a human anthropological knee-jerk response to what is presumed as the other, or not me, driven by exclusionism. It's what drives xenophobia in South Africa today. Simplified and amplified by populist politicians who twist reality in order to deform human relations by mass fear, these bigots who often pretend to be Baptists are usually committing fraud and corruption on an industrial scale. Back at Slachter's neck, Jacob Kyler believed that the rope snapping would mark this moment in history and never be forgotten, and he was right. The event, he said, would no doubt mark its example on the minds of those inhabitants who saw it, as well as those who may come to hear of it. Later, in his book, The Afrikaner's Interpretation of South African History, historian F.A. van Jarsveld said that Slachter's neck was transfigured for nationalist purposes. It was approximately in 1868, he wrote, only when neck was discovered to symbolize the way in which the British treated the Afrikaners. Anyone wishing to arouse feelings had merely to hark back to Slachters Neck Affair. By 1899, it was seen as bloody murder. And 1899 was the year of the Boer War, or the South African War, as it's known. The Slachters Neck men were martyrs. A marble monument would be raised to these martyrs much later in the 20th century, unveiled by Reverend D. F. Malan. He would end up as Prime Minister of the newly elected Nationalist Government of 1948, the first apartheid government of South Africa. From now on, the Dutch of Amsterdam would never return to the Cape. The British were in charge, and they had just defeated Napoleon in Europe. Britain kept the Cape, as well as Mauritius and St. Helena, where Napoleon found himself exiled. And in 1816, the British would seize the South Atlantic islands of Tristan da Cunha and Ascension. While they were in two minds about what to do in the Cape other than protect their main harbour, some in England were far more optimistic. They wanted this land to be at the centre of their colonial empire and it was their dominance that would be unacceptable to the Dutch speakers and the Amakosa and the Amazulu and many others. Lord Bathurst received a letter in 1815 from George Flower that South Africa was midway between the mother country, her large possession in the east her distant settlement of New Holland, that's Australia, and the Empire of China. In the centre of the world, she represents an advantageous situation for commerce with the Americas. She will become the great mart of British manufacture for three-fourths of the world. Most in London were more sceptical of this view. The cape was expensive to maintain, and there was no sign yet of the vast riches, the gold, the diamonds, the iron, the coal, the platinum, the cobalt. Meanwhile, in Cape Town, Lord Charles Somerset was determined to reinforce British rule. He had arrived in December 1813 with a supporting cast of 26 servants and officials, including a chaplain, a secretary, a butler, cook, footman, two livery servants, a boy, three ladies' maids, a woman cook, a laundry maid of colour, as they put it, from the West Indies, we believe, and the secretary's servant. It took Somerset 14 seasick weeks to travel from England to the Cape, and he would become probably the most controversial of all the Cape's governors. He would remain governor until 1827, and one which would be a transitional period for the British in general. Britain would pass from an economic depression brought on by the end of the Napoleonic Wars to arrive at the eve of reform and the railway age. And of course, the Cape colony was going to change radically during the same period. Somerset did not commute the sentences of the Slachtus Neck 5. The missionaries of South Africa would find Somerset an unforgiving man. His view of them coincided with the conservative members of the Church of England who thought of the missionaries as rebels and dissenters, Jacobins supportive of revolution. The antagonism between the Boers and the missionaries was also growing. We've heard some of this already. The Boers still provided most of the meat to the Cape Town market, and the British were wary of destabilizing or inciting them further, so their social justice causes were introduced very slowly. The Koi's servants would get their circuit caught, but with many strings attached. The Trek Boers were wary in turn of any direct interaction with the British, and both regarded the missionaries with displeasure. From his desk in the Georgian elegance of Government House in Cape Town, below the serene face of Table Mountain, surrounded by flowering scented gardens established by the VOC, Lord Charles Somerset must have believed he was in a sleepy, enchanted backwater. It's from here that Somerset began to think more seriously about the emerging regions, both along the Orange River and a place called Natal. Soon he would receive news of a powerful leader called Shaka, who was building an empire. He would also have to deal with the northern Cape, an area called Transorangia, which was the greatest access route into the deep interior. Before the end of the 1800s, the Boers would trek through here in a mass migration from the Cape. Transorangia was also where the missionaries would have their greatest successes, and it was the closing of the frontier between the Xhosa and the Cape in the east that would deflect the Boers north. The best route to approach the Orange was from Graf Reinet, this was lion-infested country, and you could travel for days without coming across any water. The first people who trekked here were not the Trekkboers, but the Bastards, the mixed-race Khoi boer slave people who were disowned and disinherited, but maintained a separate patrimony for themselves from colonial society. They fled from the society that had conceived them. Trekboers eventually followed these people north, then later other people known as the Furtrackers. And it was now, starting from the first decade of the 19th century, that the giant boor called Kundrat the base, who we know about, had made his way to Krikwa town. He travelled with the spirit of a rebel and encouraged everyone he met along the way to fight for their freedom, not to submit to the English. He left Amatosa and his lover Angika's mother, Yesi. From 1815 onwards, the northern frontier of the Cape Colony became increasingly unstable, Attracting a range of Griquas, Koikoi, San, Urlam, Sujutswana and immigrant Boers. And here the people were thrown together in a far more intimate racial association than most other regions. The sort of arrangements that had dominated the first Koza and Boer eastern frontier relationships. Intermarriage, laissez-faire would be the rule. Power here was in black or mixed race hands. Raiding commanders were mixed and Lord Charles Somerset was perturbed. One of Somerset's initial bugbears was a missionary called the Reverend John Campbell of the London Missionary Society. He was deemed a problem because he said the Griquas of Griquatown were not colonial subjects. Somerset had just dealt with the troublesome boors, now he had troublesome Griquas and missionaries. Somerset was forced to confront the same challenges his forebears had faced. However firmly he drew the boundaries of the cape, the social, economic and military stability of the colony was bound up with the people and events of the free territories beyond. Campbell was nation-building. The Griqua were determined to forge their own future without the colonists and Somerset was seething. The governor wrote a letter in 1817 where he recommended the missionaries be banned from operating outside the colony. Somerset also wanted British intervention in the country to the north of the Cape. This wild frontier this place of raiding gangs run by men like the Afrikaners, the Bloms, and the Debases. Looking east, the Matkosa had shut any further movement up the coast, so Somerset naturally looked north. While the missionaries were more successful to the north, to the east it was a completely different picture. Unlike the Khoikhoi, the Khoza-speaking people beyond the eastern frontier in 1815 had no exposure to missionary teachings. Three men were going to change this. You've heard about one, the war doctor called Ingrele, who was going to be the scourge of Grahamstown as he moulded a matrosa animism with a Christian message in a contorted millenarian movement imbued with a spirit of independence, a struggle against colonialism tightly wound up with a messianic message. His message would be repeated in the coming clashes between black and white, and his overall philosophy would be resurrected by the ANC after 1956, and some of it ended up being written into the Freedom Charter. There were two other Xhosa who would launch Christianity amongst the people. One, a herder called Ntsikana who worked at Ngnika's Great Place and the other was the son of the Tinde chief Chatu who lived near Algoa Bay. Ngele, Ntsikana and Chatu would revolutionize Amakosa cultural and religious practices and all have had a major impact on Southern African history. These three have a direct bearing on leaders like Nelson Mandela. With that, it's time to cut a few acacia branches and weave them into a circle to protect us from the hyenas and lions during the night and to draw straws to see who takes first watch. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter and you can direct message me there at Des Latham. Until next... Goodbye.